This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law podcast. Sometimes people do a weird thing and they buy expensive personal items and then you have to deal with them. And to figure out how to deal with them, that's why you need somebody like Victoria Richardson. Victoria, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Brent. So for the few people in the world who don't know who you are, why don't you explain your CV? Yeah, sure. Um, I am Victoria Richardson and I'm deputy chairman at Bonhams uh, for North America. We are appraisers and auctioneers who handle all ranges of tangible personal property, dealing with over 60 collecting categories. 60? Everything from cars, jewelry, rare wines and spirits, of course, the traditional categories like art, Asian works of art, Mm -hmm. and then uh, very esoteric collecting (laughs) categories. Esoteric like uh, endangered animal species? Now, that is a podcast all on its own, and we're <laughs> not going to go there today. Um, but, you know, you would be surprised. There is something out there for anyone, and uh, sort of the art of collecting and connoisseurship is alive and well. Yeah. If there's one thing that people do, it's hoard. So <laughs> we're very good at collecting and hoarding things, for sure. So give us uh, give us a little bit of a picture when you say, say like, art. What what. What does that include or exclude, I I guess? Of course. Well, you know, beyond just fine art, which are typical flat art and sculptures, so, you know, including paintings, photographs, prints, we really look at all ranges of tangible personal property, which I find is often uh, can be a neglected asset class. Oh, yeah. Very much an afterthought um, when creating an estate plan. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. So a collection can be an amazing legacy to pass on to the next generation and plan for, but it can also be a very big burden. And I find that passionate and knowledgeable collectors uh, don't often pass on that passion to the next generation. Mm-hmm. It's just like mom or dad's weird thing. <laughs> well, oftentimes the next generation, they don't have an interest in that collecting category. They don't have the room for the items or their tastes and style are, are just very different. Right. And collections can also be a financial burden in terms of insuring them, s- securing them, storing them, uh, maintaining condition. Mm-hmm. So it's something that, that needs to be considered definitely in, in an overall estate plan because they can be highly problematic for the person that is uh, administering the estate. Deloitte put together an interesting art and finance report a few years back And they found that 31% of collectors who plan to leave art to family members had never actually discussed it with the family members or even noted specific bequests with their estate planner. So it's something that uh, needs to have more of a conversation surrounding it. And we find that appraisals are actually a great tool for those conversations. Clients will obtain an appraisal for estate planning purposes, and it really acts as a catalyst between the client and the advisor or the family members. An appraisal like uh, during lifetime, inventory your stuff, get it valued, 
for various purposes. Well, you bring up a great point, Brent, because an appraisal is not an inventory. And let's talk about what appraisals are not, and right. then we talk about what they are. Right. So appraisals are not a full inventory of everything I have in, in my collection. They are specific valuations on uh, certain items that we have been directed to appraise. Appraisals are also not authentications. People think that just because something is listed there, um, that, that it's authentic. And that's not true. You will often see what we call the assumes language on an appraisal. And that reads as this assumes the recognized authority on the artist would confirm the attribution. So appraisers and auction houses are not that recognized expert on authentication. Right. There often is a recognized body. So if we look uh, at an artist like Renoir, for example, the WPI, the Wildenstein Platt Institute, meets twice a year. They alternate their meetings between New York and Paris. They need to see the items in person, regardless of if they're in the catalog raisonné, mm -hmm. have exhibition history, have a lot of literature written about them. And then they will then formally authenticate or deem the work not authentic. If they do formally authenticate, then they will give a certificate of authenticity. And you know that is something that's really important to be kept. Uh, if there is a current certificate of authenticity, it will note that or it should note that on the appraisal document. So let's say, uh, let's say I think that I have a Renoir mm -hmm. in my possession. At what stage? Do you think I should go through that authentication process or how is it at, at what sort of at what sort of points does it become the most relevant for me yeah. as the collector and then thinking about, OK, maybe I have this thing that could be worth a lot of money. It also could be worth nothing. Who do I give it to? Of course. Well, if you were purchasing this work yourself, of course, that would be right. the time to ask for it. However, say you inherited the work or um, somehow it came into your possession uh, I would definitely recommend you go through the formal authentication process when looking to insure the work. So, you know, an insurance value um, is, is a retail replacement value. Whereas if we're looking at a charitable donation appraisal, a gift tax appraisal, uh, an estate tax appraisal, those all utilize a fair market value. Retail replacement value is significantly higher in most cases because if your house burned down, you lost your Renoir, right. you would need to go out and replace it without the luxury of waiting a year or two for it to come up at auction. You would just want to walk into a gallery and get a similar similar work of art. Right. Oftentimes, if we produce a fair market value appraisal for estate planning purposes, the client will then turn around and say, oh, I'm going to submit this to my insurance carrier for an updated insurance rider. That can be very detrimental because in because estate tax values or estate planning values, which are fair market, uh -huh. are not interchangeable with an insurance value. So you run the risk of being significantly underinsured on those items. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the <laughs> people probably would think it would be the reverse, that the insurance company would want to insure a lower value. But it's, but it's the reverse. You're looking at it from your perspective as the collector that you want to be insured for a higher value, of course, so that you can claim more money if you, if you lose the piece. 
because they're you know Renoir is not going to be born again and he's not going to start painting again. So <laughs> it should be you should be well compensated for losing something like that. Exactly. We see beneficiaries often doing the same thing. They will inherit the work of art. They'll get their hands on the estate tax appraisal and then use that fair market value that was based on the date of death to insure the work. And again, that's a fair market value right. and not a retail replacement right. value. Uh, many trustees or other fiduciaries you know, looking to solve for issues such as um, family-held businesses, real estate holdings, do a lot of due diligence with regards to title, condition, provenance, and the same considerations need to be made with a client's art collection. So a record of ownership will oftentimes be referred to as provenance. This tracks who owned the piece, you know, the, the history that it's traveled, and it helps determine the quality and has a big impact on value. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example of this. Last year, we worked on the estate of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and we brought her collection of rare books and manuscripts. Some of them not particularly rare. They were just ordinary books in her library. But because but she owned them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So her copy of the 1957-58 Harvard Law Review, it was her personal copy it was very heavily annotated throughout. This is a book, a volume, that you can find readily available on eBay, on the internet, for, say, $100, $200. Because it was hers, it had her notes in the margin. She was one of two female editors of the Harvard Law Review at the time. Mm -hmm. It had a pre-sale auction estimate of $25 to $3,500. But bidders from around the globe battled for this book. And because of the provenance, drove the, the work to sell for over $100,000. Wow. So provenance really impacts value there. Right. People will often say, my client is no RBG. My client is, is not a celebrity or anyone famous. But tracking that provenance and who owned it and which collections it was in really can impact the value, even if the decedent was not a person of note themselves. Can that be true even even for, you know, to take, uh, well, I guess you could take something like a Harvard uh, student guide or, you know, some pamphlet or something, but for art, does it matter where it has in the past been displayed? So you say this was displayed at the Chicago Museum of Art. This was displayed at MoMA, this, you know, somewhere where it had a very prominent public display, even though it's maybe not out on display now. Does that sort of provenance as well sort of drive up the price? Of course. We refer to that as exhibition history. Okay. And exhibition history, when you turn over a painting, if a work has been in a specific exhibition, they will often put a label on the back. So, um, you know, the MFA Boston, it was, you know, part of the John Singer Sargent retrospective. And um, it will have a tag on the back that it was included in that exhibition and, and the time period. Oftentimes, uh, if clients keep great records, so purchase receipts, exhibition history, literature, which a work has been included in, we will always try and include that in the appraisal document. Mm -hmm. So along with the other necessary information, such as measurements, condition, medium, subject matter, you know, attribution, artist name, we will often include the provenance, the literature, the exhibition history. It's really important to, to put all that in, into the appraisal. Yeah. How, how much of it do you think is telling the story that then supports the value? Or is it just giving sort of 
these are the facts. This is why it has a value. Does that make sense? The, the difference that I'm trying to... Yes. The storytelling, so the narrative around the work is incredibly important when you come to, to selling it, to okay. put it up for auction. The, um, the, the exhibition history and the literature, that is important to include because it helps establish authenticity. Mm -hmm. If there is no formal body of work authenticating this particular artist, then the fact that it was included in these shows, these museum curators deemed it authentic. Um, it was on public exhibition and, you know, nobody had, a, had an issue with it. The fact that it's been included in a catalog resume or other literature or body of work about the artist, that really helps determine, you know, things like title, provenance, authenticity. Um, but then, of course, the narrative and the story, the history around the piece is why the collectors are so eager for those sorts of works. And you, and you also have a lot of cachet to have a work in your home that you know was on public exhibition. Sure, of course. <laughs> I can imagine. And I can imagine that everybody that comes into your house, you tell them all about how that work was on public exhibition somewhere. Well, the interesting thing is so many collections are often out of sight, out of mind. So it can be a fabulous jewelry collection that's been locked in a safe deposit box for decades or a work of art that is buried in an attic, or even something that is, is around in plain sight, but just part of the fabric of everyday life. Right. Uh, a little while back, I was working with a, a family uh, on their estate tax appraisal. The matriarch had passed away, and they had a, a beautiful dish. It was an Asian dish. And one of my colleagues who heads our Asian art department started looking at the dish very closely and she almost went sort of pale and I said is there a problem and she goes I think this is a very rare copper Ming dish and the actually it was the attorney who was there on site the attorney was there and he said we've already had someone look at the dish and it's a reproduction and our specialist said do you mind if I take it and research it he said, go for it. So we wrote a handwritten receipt uh, with, with an insurance value for the work. Uh -huh. And then we took it back to our office. We actually made it a custom phone-lined box for it, a crate, uh -huh. and took it to London and showed it to our Asian art department out of our London office, as well as some of the, the dealers in this sort of porcelain. And we, we had a grown man cry when he saw this particular dish. Keep in mind, this dish, almost like a bowl, it's sort of a charger. The family would eat crap crab out of it every Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> That's we have, amazing. We have photographs of the family sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table, and the dish is piled high in crab. Long story short, we sold the dish for $7.2 million at oh auction. But this had just been something that was sort of sitting in a beautiful breakfront chest. Right. Uh, you know, in the dining room. Right. And it was really part of the fabric. Nothing that had been insured, nothing that had been planned for. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I, and I, I completely agree with you. Actually, those sorts of things, uh, they give me heart attacks um, <laughs> when clients tell me about them. And I had a client one time, he told me, uh, he's like, well, I've got some artwork too. I was like, oh, really? What kind of kind of artwork you've got and he's like well i've got a few original pieces by a couple of different artists I'm like well do tell who he's like well you know there's a couple warhols and there's some mapplethorpes and there's you know he lists off all of these like famous american modern artists 
I'm like, okay, this is a, I'm glad that you finally did come around to tell me about this, but it's a little different conversation that I've got a little bit of art in my house. Yeah. It, but when people have lived with it for decades, it's just yeah. like a, a, a family member. Yeah, exactly. To that. Yeah. I, I had another, another client, I was at their house and we were talking about travel and I had, I had somewhat recently gotten back from Spain and they said, oh, well, you, do, you, uh, do you like art? I said, yeah, I, I do like art. I said, well, do you like Miro? So I love, I love Miro. He's one of my favorites. I'm like, hey, come, well, come over here. And they had a, a hallway full of original Miro paste, uh, pieces in their house. Just, it was just like that was the hallway art. That's incredible. You know? I would have had it all locked away in some secure storage somewhere. They just had it hanging on their wall. Well, were they prints and multiples or were they unique works? They were unique works. Some were like uh, hand-drawn sketches. Some were actual paintings. Well, that's a treat to see. Yeah, it was amazing. I couldn't even believe that they had it. And I had just come back from Barcelona and from the Moreau Museum in Barcelona (laughs) And then to go walk into their house in Tucson and see these original pieces by these same artists was incredible. That is. Yeah. But I think you're right that people sometimes downplay the importance of those pieces sort of in the grand fabric of their overall estate planning. Mm -hmm. And they don't think through the specifics of how exactly am I going to pass this on to somebody else. And it sort of oftentimes... It's a little bit of an afterthought, like it's sort of tossed in with everything else that is tangible personal property, which includes the furniture and the utensils in the kitchen and all sorts of stuff that is not really that important, maybe has sentimental value, but otherwise isn't really that valuable. And it all gets lumped in together, which creates this very weird pot of assets that can be hard to manage. And and there can be a lot of emotion it's in the family. Very- very emotionally charged. We see this especially when it comes to jewelry. So we remember someone wearing right. it. You know, jewelry is often given for gifts for birthdays, anniversaries, significant occasions. So there are specific memories attached to that piece of jewelry. You remember that that individual wearing it. And that is something that we often see disappear quite quickly after there's there's been a death. It's small, it's easy to transport, it's uh-huh. not like taking a painting off of a wall. So that's that's an area that we um, we see you know right after death. It's important to safeguard those assets. Yeah, definitely. Something I, I dealt with a few years back, there was a patriarch of the family and he was sort of a larger than life character and he had an incredible wine collection. And he had told all of his family members, when I die, I want you to have a big party and you know enjoy my wine collection mm-hmm. and, and celebrate, celebrate the memory. He didn't want his family to feel sad. So they had this incredible celebration of life and they had this wonderful wine collection. He had spent years buying fine and rare wines at auction and he had told his family members and given them the instructions to drink this. So we then get called in to do the estate tax appraisal. And the trustee came to Bonhams and said, we have this this very important wine collection. And we were familiar with the wine collection because the decedent had purchased much of the wine at auction at Bonhams. (laughs) So we sort of had a record of of what he had. And we knew that, you know, he liked certain French varieties. And 
So we went up to his property in the Napa Valley to go and, and appraise um, the wine collection. So we, we get up there and there are dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of empty bottles. And the trustee said, okay, you know, a lot of the wine collection is, is here downstairs, but then there's also all of this. And, and we were silent. And then I said, well, what happened to all of this? And he said, oh, well, they drank it during the memorial service. And we had never seen the collection in situ. We didn't know how things had been cellared. And it was impossible to tell the condition of the wine at the time of death. Oh, no. So we didn't know at the time of death, um, you know, what were the fill levels? Uh-huh. Had, had, the, had the caps been broken or cut? Uh, was, was there seepage? Um, so we had to then value the wine based on the assumption that it was in absolute mint condition. And the trustee said, well, you know, they purchased so much of this wine from you. What condition was it when, when he purchased it? And we said, yes, but that was five years ago, 10 years ago. We don't know how it was cellared in that last decade. Right. You know, were there big temperature swings? Uh, were there earthquakes? We, we didn't know, you know, what the condition was at the time of death. So that, that provided a pretty tricky situation. So did you have to interview everybody at the party? Say, how was the wine, by the way? <laughs> did it taste good? Did it taste a little off? Again, we operated on the assumption that it was in the same condition it had been when it when he purchased it. Luckily, he had purchased it at Bonhams, and we do very detailed condition reports on whether you're buying artwork or jewelry or wine or cars. There's always a condition report that right. the potential buyer can ask for. So we had those notes. And we included the um, the assumptions on the appraisal document. Yeah. So, well, that's a good that's a good segue, I think, into uh, the IRS side of this because the IRS also, of course, is not is another party who also tries to uh, get values on artwork, and they do it through uh, their art advisory panel. So, why don't you describe what that is? Because there's probably a lot of people that have never even heard. The, the words IRS, art, advisory, and panel put together in a sentence. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the, the IRS commissioner's art advisory panel, we'll refer to it as the art panel. Mm-hmm. What is the art panel? The, it was created in 1968, and the IRS commissioner's art advisory panel provides advice and makes value recommendations to the art appraisal services of the IRS regarding the acceptability of appraisals used by the taxpayer to support their fair market value claimed on a wide range of artworks um, that are involved in income, estate tax, and gift tax returns. So what is the makeup of this panel and and, and what do they exactly do? The art panel is composed of up to 25 members who serve without compensation. Right now, there are about 17 members of the art panel and they are renowned experts. I mean, if they paid people, they could probably fill that panel. <laughs> just, if anybody from the IRS is listening, just a little uh, tidbit there. <laughs> they, you know, it's a it's a really interesting group of museum curators, art advisors, dealers, and the panel meets twice a year. The meetings, of course, are are closed to the public, but when a tax return is audited and the return includes an appraisal of a single work of property valued at 50000 or more, and this is, of course, cultural or tangible personal property, right. 
the agent or the appeals officer may refer the case to the ART panel. So let's take a look at, at the summary report for, for the fiscal year of 2022, last year. Last year, there were 17 members of the ART panel. The panel met twice, once in April and once in September. They reviewed 206 items with an aggregate taxpayer valuation of over $315 million in 44 taxpayer cases. The average claim value for an item being reviewed by the panel was a little over $1.5 million. The panel recommended accepting the value on, seven, on 72 items, or only 35% of the items presented oh to them. It, it recommended adjusting the values on 134 items. Up, of course. <laughs> Not down. Of, of, uh, no. Oh, yes. Yeah, the values, adjusting the values up, exactly, not down. Exactly, on 65% of the items presented to them. So of those 134 items with recommended adjustments, the panel recommended a total net adjustment of 176000 to the claim values, or a 56%. So this is one of the reasons that we find it so important to hire qualified appraisers. You want to find a specialist who regularly performs appraisals, has education and experience in valuing that particular yeah. type of property. We're not going to hire a heart surgeon to pull a tooth. And it's the same with, with valuations. The appraisal designations from a recognized professional appraisal organization, such as being USPAP certified, is also extremely important. USPAP being what? The Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. Okay. And they set out guidelines, uh, and which are adhering to the IRS guidelines of qualified appraisals. Got it. Well, and that's that's the other thing. You know, you have to really have good appraisals to substantiate pretty much any tax position that you're taking with tangible personal property. I mean, that's true for a lot of things, but tangible personal property in particular. Like you have to you have to back up the numbers, and you don't want to back it up with something that's garbage that the IRS is just going to be able to dismiss easily. Exactly. And and a qualified appraisal will include images of the items, medium, dimensions. If it's a painting, it does not include the frame, just dimensions of the work itself. Mm -hmm. um, if it's jewelry, it will include carat weights uh, or metal types, condition notes, the date the appraisal was conducted, and also a description of the appraiser's qualifications and their background as well as the methodology used. Mm -hmm. So are you using the sales comparison method, for example? Right. So let's say that I do have a original Goya, but it's in an original frame. Does the appraisal then appraise the value of the, the frame separately from the value of the painting? So you actually get two valuations? Yes, but the... It would, if it's the original frame, of course, that um, collectors love to see that, yeah, right? of course. But the, the value of the frame itself is a drop, in, in your example, is mm -hmm. a drop in the ocean compared to the value of, of the work. Right, right. So this particular uh, Renoir I was speaking about earlier that went to the Wildenstein Platt Institute, uh, it was a really interesting story. It was a family uh, that lived just outside of Paris, and 
Uh, they escaped France days before the Nazi occupation, and they fled with their artwork to the United States. And so all of the frames were, were left in Paris, and they just had the actual canvases themselves. Oh, wow. Yeah. Crazy. Man. Well, that gets to your your um, your point about the, the provenance and where has this art been and what's the story and who's owned it and how did they own it? Yeah, we were actually able to track the exact uh, path and found the ship logs that the family took uh, on the boat from, um, I think it was from Denmark to, to New York. Wow. And uh, this was originally in a chateau in a little town called Saint-Cloud outside of Paris. And their grandfather had been the mayor of this town of Saint-Cloud. And they escaped with about four or five paintings. Amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. But it, it, uh, I guess it illustrates the point of with these sorts of assets, you also want to keep good records. You don't want to just toss all of the documents that support the history and the travels of these pieces. You want to document it as best you can, keep those good records. If you're being kind to people who are going to follow you after you die, keep them in a place where they can find it. Exactly. We find that really well-organized collectors will have binders that include purchase history, any certificates of authenticity, mm-hmm. um, you know, prior appraisals that are done. We recommend updating appraisals often too, especially insurance appraisals. People will often get an appraisal done and then fail to uh, update those documents. Right. Well, all right. This has been fun. I could talk to you about this um, endlessly, but I also know you have other things to do with your life. So if people are trying to find you, what's the easiest way for them to find you? Well, they can uh, they can call you, Brent. <laughs> That's true. And I'll just send them your way. <laughs> or, um, of course, they can go to bonhams.com. And I'm listed under our trust and estates department there. But um, this is an area I'm really passionate about, and I'm always happy to have a conversation about different valuation topics or collection management. And and then it's about also fun things. You know, it's not valuation of boring things. It's valuation of a lot of really fun things, too. You know, every day is, is a new day. So you never know when you walk into a collector's home, will they have a Native American collection well, they have an incredible contemporary photography collection. Mm-hmm. It's really, um, it's really a treasure hunt. Yeah, very fun. Well, I'll I'll put links in the notes and things so people can find you. They can also Google you. I I'm sure that will work. But thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brent. And it's been really nice to be here with you in person. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.